Welcome, everybody, to another episode of Need Some Introduction. I'm your host, Victor. And in today's episode, I will be primarily breaking down episode 17 of Your Honor. We are very close to the end of this season and very close to the end of this show. This is an eventful episode. Many revelations actually makes me wonder how much plot could be left for three more episodes. And as I had speculated last week, this is happening in nearly real time. We are only covering maybe two or three more hours of this same night, which has been now ongoing. The second half of this season pretty much has unfolded within practically a 24-hour period. In this same feed, of course, we continue to cover The Last of Us after a really strong episode last week. Then we will have an episode recapping the next episode of that show on Monday. When these shows wrap up, we will be covering Yellow Jackets and Succession, both premiering on the same night. And two of my most highly anticipated shows of the year for many very different reasons. And we'll have some bonus episodes along the way covering the previous seasons of those series, as well as, honestly, a flood of new content of other exciting premieres coming our way. The return of Ted Lasso, just one of those upcoming premieres, plus our ongoing coverage of shows here week to week. As new things pop up that come up on my radar, I will be sure to recommend them to you. And I have also now seen all 10 of the Academy Award nominated Best Picture nominees. And I do plan to have an episode where I kind of rank them, my preference from best to worst on that series of films, most of which I did enjoy and do recommend pretty enthusiastically. If you're curious to see my final ranking, that episode will be upcoming as well. If you have any feedback for us, please reach out to us at needsomeintroduction at gmail.com. Make sure you subscribe so that you know when all these episodes become available. And if you'd like to support the show, recommend this to your friends and family, or track down some other shows that we've covered in the past that maybe you're catching up on now, or use it as an excuse to catch up on those shows and listen along with our previous conversations, whether that be Succession, or Better Call Saul, or the previous seasons of Yellow Jackets, or recently I've seen a lot of folks downloading the recaps for Nine Perfect Strangers, a show that I didn't love. Uh, Sona definitely appreciated it more than I did. But we did have some interesting conversations about it. And probably the first half of that series, I thought was pretty successful. So if you are planning to watch that, if you want to hear feedback from other listeners, we watched it. You can check our catalog for those shows and many other shows as well. Now for this week, before I get into the recap of part 17, this seventh episode of the second season of Your Honor, I had a few comments to make and a recommendation as well. The first thing I'd recommend for everybody is to catch up on Poker Face. If you have Peacock, even if you don't have Peacock, you can actually watch the premiere episode for free just by downloading the app. The first episode is available to everybody. And it's a brilliant first episode of the show. Now, this show has actually become quite successful, and it's a big win for Peacock. They also have, just this very weekend, an unrated version of the Megan film, the sci-fi horror comedy that came out earlier this year which should be another success for them as well, not only having this premiere, but I feel like that film was a little weak tea, mostly because of the rating. It came out as a PG-13. So I am curious to see what the unrated version looks like and if it hits a little harder than that original version. And I think that's going to be another win for Peacock. I'm very curious to see what do they do next. Poker Face is wrapping up in just two more weeks. It's been an enormous success for Peacock, brought a lot of attention to them. But what comes next that can help them maintain this new audience they've found or this new attention they found. But if you happen to have Peacock, I actually have a one-year subscription that came out to less than $1 per month, so I couldn't turn it down. And if you want to have a quick catch-up on the show, I'd recommend you could just pretty much watch episode one, episode five, and then this most recent episode eight. This is a procedural. It basically is the same premise over and over again, like The Incredible Hulk, for example. Our protagonist, Natasha Leone rolls into town and helps solve a murder mystery. It's also like Murder, She Wrote. Also, I don't know why I didn't see this earlier, until there was an autoplay recommendation in my Peacock app, very much like a show that Sona loves, which is Psych, where you have a detective who's pretending to have psychic powers, but really is just very good at observing details and discrepancies. Because here, Natasha Leone just basically is a human lie detector. But of course, you can't make a case on that, so she needs to unravel the actual crime and find actual evidence to help catch these baddies. This has been a very entertaining season of show. 
because it's such a procedural and you reset pretty much every single week, it has been variable. The last two episodes, I would say, are probably the weakest, but I did want to call out this week's episode for a couple of reasons. First of all, it is directed by Natasha Leone very well, by the way. Second of all, it has elements of horror to it, which I found very interesting. It's a new direction for the show, and it is one of the stronger episodes. Of course, you can watch all these episodes. Even the worst of them is still very solidly entertaining. But once again, I thought episode one, five, and eight is pretty much all you need to know. You might want to throw episode two in there also. It was also written and directed by Ryan Johnson, or at least directed by him, maybe not written by that particular episode, who's the creator of the show. And of course, just had a huge hit recently with Glass Onion, that Knives Out sequel. But yet another reason that I want people to catch up on it is because next week, not this week, but the next week, Ryan Johnson returns for the next episode of the show. I haven't seen it yet, but I know the plot summary, and this sounds like a whole lot of fun. She, once again, has this ability of telling when people are lying. A storm has trapped her inside of a house with a bunch of people, and one of them is a killer. And she needs to feel out all these different lies that everybody's telling and what is actually going on and everybody's lives are at stake because there's a killer among them. I love these types of films. And even though to some extent Glass Onion is set up this way, and I didn't love the Glass Onion movie, but I loved what Ryan Johnson did with the first episode of this show, just as a bottle episode, it had an excellent beginning, middle, end. It was like a little mini movie. And I thought it was one of the strongest episodes of TV I'd seen in a very long time, especially of this genre. So I can't wait for next week's episode. And here's a reminder that the show's still on the air. And if you want to have like a free trial, for example, next week might be a perfect time to set it up. You can binge the show. You can watch that Ryan Johnson episode. And of course, hang in there because one week later, the show, the finale, the season finale comes along, has been renewed for another season. So we'll definitely see more of this in the future. And this is the type of show that can just go on for a very long time, as long as the scenarios and the guest stars stay interesting. I mean, this is a formula that has worked in television for decades, and it still works with just enough variation, just enough edginess to it to not make it feel like a rehash of something old. So that's Poker Face on Peacock. Do catch up with it. It has been very entertaining. One of the strongest episodes this week, and more importantly, cannot wait for next week. All right. Recommendation number two. New on Amazon Prime just today, I believe, when this is publishing, is a show called The Consultant. We work for the most successful mobile game studio in Los Angeles. But suddenly... Our CEO is gone. And then we arrived. So, who's the suit? He's a consultant. Good morning, comrades. My job is to observe, to streamline, to improve. For those who work remotely, you have one hour to get here or you'll be terminated. There's literally nothing online about it. Some other CEO hired Patok. And he was killed two weeks later. What if he's more than just a consultant? What the hell? Stop the car! You're breathing too fast. Now breathe with me. In. Out. We work for a sociopath. <laughs> Some excel under stress. Maybe he's just really good at his job. Some break. I won't be here forever. I'm only the consultant. This stars Christoph Waltz as a consultant that shows up after a really grisly death occurs at a video game company. And it turns out he has a contract in hand signed by the deceased CEO at this point. And he starts to change things at the organization. This has elements of horror. It has hints of the supernatural. Christoph Waltz is very entertaining in this role. He can practically do this in his sleep. This is very much him channeling his Hans Lanza manipulative gaslighting persona, something he could do pretty easily. I actually am a fan of Christoph Waltz outside of Inglorious Bastards, where he came to prominence. He has very much intentionally, even in Django Unchained, for example, which also got him an Academy Award win, has gone out of his way to play different roles. So in this way, he's kind of leaning into probably his most popular persona. I actually think he's a pretty versatile actor. Still, he's very effective at this role. And he's this consultant. He starts to change the practices of 
the business for better and worse. And he starts to test everybody. So it's very Faustian, this type of persona he takes on. He's always lit in red. So there's always these demonic indicators around him. And there's a bit of a mystery to this show. I would recommend this if you were a fan of Severance, and many of you were. I know many of you joined this podcast or discovered this podcast during our coverage of Severance. This is Severance for dummies, basically. Everything's kind of out in the open. The mysteries are more overt, whereas Severance tries to play things in between of like, I don't know what's happening, but keeps things tantalizing. This pretty much tells you what the deal is by the end of this first season. This theoretically could go on for season two, possibly if this is a phenomenal success that we'd bring it in for another season. But this is very much meant to be a single season of television, I believe. And I find it entertaining. You have, along with Christoph Waltz, you have Brittany O'Grady, probably most recognizable from season one of The White Lotus. You have Nat Wolf, the other Wolf brother, not the one in Hereditary and Pig, the other one. And everyone does a good job here with the material. The material itself struggles sometimes to make it worthwhile to be eight episodes long. They're only 30 minutes long. I'm always very interested, by the way, in how these creators decide to release a show. And this one has all eight episodes available to binge immediately, which I think is the right decision for this particular series. I think that going week to week, I would have quit on this show because there just wouldn't have been enough happening for week to week to keep me going. However, at 30 minutes per episode, I just kept pressing next and pressing next. And this finale does something very funny. I won't spoil anything here. This is spoiler free, by the way. The finale does something very entertaining in the fact that aside from the first couple of episodes, there's relatively little comedy here. It's a lot of satire, but nothing really overtly funny in any way. And by the time you get to the end, things wrap up in a pretty perfunctory way, I felt. And then we get a button on the episode, just the last few minutes, which you'll have to obviously watch to get there. But I thought the satire it's making about capitalism is surprisingly pretty sharp there at the very end. And I don't want to spoil it here. So I will almost certainly have to have a conversation. I believe Celia has seen the whole entire show. So stay tuned because probably next week I'll have a spoiler conversation with her. For me, I had this strange pivot where as I'm watching the finale, I'm like, okay, this show's pretty much run its course at this point. Like I just wanted to wrap up now. And then just the last few minutes really turned me around on the show. It's as if the whole show turned into a joke at the end. And I don't mean that on a joke on the audience, but a joke we were in on the whole time without going to any more detail. I found that just the last few minutes of the show really bumped it up another notch in my estimation. So check that out. It is, for example, Sona was not a huge fan of the weirder elements of Severance. This leans all the way into the weirdest elements of that show. I am pretty sure that this show itself which is based on an existing novel, by the way, but created for television by the same writer who brought us Servant on Apple TV+. So like that show, it has these maybe supernatural elements to it. I mean, I guess that show becomes overtly supernatural at some point. But for season one, you're very curious as to what you're seeing. Is this really happening? Is it in someone's mind? So it does play with some of this ambiguity. But unlike that show, it tells you the whole story by the end of season one. And by the way, that is not a ding against it. I have been very frustrated in the past year where a lot of these shows seem like they were brought in with no actual resolution planned, just an assumption that there'll be a season two. And then of course, there is no season two, so you're just left out to dry. You get pretty much all the answers you would want from this show after season one. As a matter of fact, if there was a season two, I doubt I would tune in, but I did think it was successful in this first season. So check that out. If that sounds interesting to you, a surreal workplace satire does not meet the standards of Severance, even at half an hour and only eight episodes, probably a little too long. But in the end, I found it to be pretty satisfying and good performances are all around. And it does have some thoughts on its mind. The whole series is pretty much a metaphor. So I don't want to delve into that metaphor until we can have a spoiler conversation. And I'll save that one for a later episode once you have a chance to catch up on the show. Okay, so on to our episode of Your Honor, part 17. As the episode begins, Eugene shows up at Lee's apartment, his former lawyer. He's been shot. This is all very messy, by the way. So Rudy shot him, assumed he was dead or near death, and just disappeared. Didn't have his face masked or anything, although there's no description of him out there. I just thought the way they staged this last week was very strange. You could have made it a little more believable. Regardless, he has run off, Eugene has. 
He's bleeding out. Who does he know in town? And he doesn't know Ali's apartment. We saw last season, he was right outside her building when he was abducted. He does not want to go to the hospital, but she does have a friend, someone who's a doctor who may be able to show up and help out. Meanwhile, Michael's been pulled over by guess who? We don't know this right away, but we suspect it. Turns out he never renewed his license. Now, only as I'm doing the recap here, I realize this is a pretty silly thing to do. I'll just jump to the end. Obviously, anyone who's seen this, this episode already knows. This is Walter Beckwith, the same crooked cop that killed Michael's wife, we discovered last week. So presumably, he has been looking for Michael to pull him over. He asked him a bunch of questions. But now, once again, as I'm recapping, I'm remembering that when he discovers that this is Michael, there's a moment where he freezes up. So this is a coincidence. This is all very strange. So this he coincidentally pulls over Michael, who isn't it speeding, then does run his history to realize that he has an expired driver's license, which he uses as a pretense to put him into his car. Luckily, Michael does grab his cell phone and, and puts it inside his button-up shirt before he gets arrested. So yeah, now as I'm recapping this, this is a strange course of events and maybe just convenient plotting. It would make more sense if Beckwith was tailing him and then uses this all as a pretense because it's surprised to discover that this is the husband of the woman he killed and that he's called in the plates and done the research and now assume, presumably has this history of his search tied to his police vehicle and now Michael's going to disappear, I guess. He is going to try to make this look like a suicide. So maybe this makes sense. Seems really sloppy. And if he's just discovering now that this is Michael, he should come up with a better plan to eradicate the threat. Plus, has he spoken to Nancy already? This is pretty rash, but maybe, I mean, later on, he seems to be pretty confident that he's, hey, he's gotten away with it this long. Maybe that's his rationale this whole time. But it is a little <laughs> vexing now that I'm just thinking about it. <laughs> Maybe better not to look too deeply into some of these plot points. In general, this is pretty believable. He's come out of prison. Michael has. He forgot to renew his license. I, I'm sure this happens to a lot of people. He's mostly been riding the bus. He doesn't even have a car right now. He's borrowing his mother-in-law's car. So all of that is pretty believable. But the way this place plays out is a little questionable. Then again, if these crooked cops, and we discover there's more than one by the end of this, really are at the end of their line, maybe they're willing to be rash because, hey, they have nothing to lose. Simultaneously, there's a lot of drama over in the Baxter family. Most interestingly is that Jimmy feels liberated for some reason. He suddenly feels like he's not going to take orders from anyone. And strangely, this is the moment where he suddenly feels that sense of relief. I'm not sure what the core trigger for this is, to be honest. But he tells Gina that he's fired Frankie. She's surprised. You never even consulted with me. But he just has this kind of placid look on his face. In parallel, we see that Rudy is starting to panic. He completely botched Eugene's execution last week, wasn't even aware that the cops had not picked up the body, and he's extremely frustrated now. He's looking around hospitals, trying to see if there's any gunshot wounds reported. All the secrets are coming out into the light, and everyone is starting to scramble. Rudy is panicking. He needs to find Eugene. Meanwhile, Eugene is bleeding out, Lee has invited an obstetrician, a friend of hers, to come help. And she's like, how much help can I do? I can just try to stop the bleeding. But if he gets any worse, we have to take him to the hospital. Something, of course, he's terrified of because he knows as soon as he pops up on the radar, it's bad news for him. The Baxters consult with their own crooked cop. And there's just so much he can do also. As far as the New Orleans Police Department is concerned, Eugene is dead. So it's going to be hard for them to raise an alert to find this guy the question would be, what are you talking about? And if they do find them, how did you know? Jimmy reaches out to Big Mo and says, our ceasefire is no more. And it's going to be open war between this local mafia and the Desire gang. You said you'd take care of your boy and I'd take care of mine. But apparently you didn't hold up your end of the bargain. And your boy can use a good ass whooping. So where'd that leave us? I took you at your word. It's foolish on my part, I know. That won't happen again. This uh, detente of ours, that was a, a gesture of goodwill on my part, a gift from me to you. And that can be dissolved. See, I had this confused. You ain't the only one with guns. 
and a ceasefire, just like the fucking tango, takes two. Eugene's situation does indeed get worse, and they have to bring him to a local hospital. They were hoping to minimally take him to a hospital outside of New Orleans. By hospital policy, they have to call in gunshots. But after Lee's pleas, the nurse in charge does change the description of the victim. But that only buys them so much time. As I mentioned, things are bad all over. Michael's still in the back of that police cruiser and is not even pretending anymore that he doesn't know who this police officer is and is trying to, little by little, get him to reveal more information about the murder of his wife. And Beckwith, little by little, is revealing more and more, considering he probably assumes Michael's not long for this world. Things are bad in the world of Big Mo and the Desire Gang. She's losing some loyalty. Not only is little Mo apparently preparing for vengeance, Chris and his family don't even want her around, given the death of Chris's little brother. Big Mo goes to pay her condolences, but it's cold comfort. She does seem to be legitimately upset about this happening, but this could be an internal fracture that she cannot resolve. This is a suspenseful episode across the board, and one of the most suspenseful moments are when Eugene is in the hospital, now handcuffed to his hospital bed, because a security guard has revealed his actual description. And of course, Rudy's on the way. And Eugene smartly, when he sees Rudy's there, starts to scream out his name, basically blow his cover, but more importantly, is to draw attention to himself. Anybody who knows his name from the news is suddenly going to prick up their ears, and it's going to be very inconvenient for Rudy to do anything, try to steal him away, or just murder him there in the middle of the hospital, which is probably what his original plan was to close the door behind him and kill him quietly. Well, none of that can happen now. So Eugene is going to jail, but at least he survives. And of course, Rudy is now out of any options. And he calls up Charlie and tells him, Charlie, we're in trouble. Charlie's like, I think you're in trouble because my fingerprints aren't on this and your fingerprints are all over this. Eugene Jones is alive. You sure? Yeah, I'm sure. I shot him tonight, but uh, he got away. Whoa, 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 slow down. Where is he now? In a hospital. Everyone's about to find out. Charlie, wait. Hey, what should we do? Charlie, we're so fucked. Who's we? What? You're the one who found the dead body. You're the one who took credit for cracking a case you didn't solve. Sound like you in your car. Yeah. I suggest you keep on driving. Maybe just keep driving. Meanwhile, Beckwith and Michael have gotten to an underpass somewhere. He's planning to kill Michael, make it look like a suicide. I mean, he is a suicidal person. It's been proven over and over again. So not necessarily a bad cover-up story. Michael's trying to say, I hope you know that when they take you down, it's going to be because of my murder. Beckwith feels like, mm, you know what? I've gotten away with so much up until this point. I think I'm going to get away with it again. He does put a little salt in wood. I'm the one who killed your wife. Now, I think that your suicide is going to feel tragically believable. There are only two of us involved, but just so you know... I was the one that got her. Because I could not stop for death. You kindly stopped for me. Right so. And of course, at that very moment, Nancy Costello shows up to save the day. Turns out, Gloria has been tracking Michael's movements the whole entire time, turned on her family location sharing on that phone she gave him, and she's been tracking his movement this whole entire time. Nancy was smart enough to reach out to Gloria and arrived just in the nick of time, literally seconds. <laughs> it would be funnier, I guess, if she's been actually standing in the shadows the whole entire time for 10, 15 minutes now, listening to the whole thing, going like, mm -hmm, okay, that's enough information, <laughs> and waiting to the very, very last second to pull the trigger. She did cut it super close, if that's the case. Nancy definitely does not arrest Beckwith by the book, tortures him, unlocks his phone using his face ID, and Michael mentions, because they're trying to find out who this other cop could be, and there's only one number he calls for very long periods of time, 
whenever he gets into trouble, they discover by looking at his phone logs. Little Mo shows up at the wake for Chris's brother, and they seem to come to an agreement here. Big Mo has been so fixated on buying that club, she's taken the eye off of protecting the gang. She let that tainted heroin into the neighborhood, and she didn't even protect her own. She's actually made the same appraisal of herself earlier in the episode, by the way. So we definitely still have a sympathetic perspective on her, but that's not enough for the gang now. And I do think we're going to see Chris, Lil Mo, and maybe recruiting additional muscle to go after Big Mo. As she said earlier in the episode, she's in the eye of the storm now. They all are. And we are in this show. Next, we have a very interesting scene here as we approach the end of the episode. Jimmy is just scoffing down some pasta, disgustingly, by the way. We've never seen him more casual and comfortable on this show as we do right now, as things are really getting bad. Jimmy calls Philip Calabri, says, I'll take your money, and you guys can use the ports, but only until we finish the Baxter District construction. And they agree to this. His strategic acumen and confidence seem to be at all-time highs right now, as is his appetite. He's also very confident that Fia is coming back. She has nowhere else to go. Fia, meanwhile, has gone to the church, believe it or not. She has few refuges, indeed. During her conversation with this young priest, he tells her his dad, years ago, had mocked him the same way. He couldn't be on his own. He couldn't survive on his own. He needed his father, a domineering dad, just like Jimmy, and he would not be able to make it on his own. But he did. He found his way to the church. Fia at first laughs and thinks, you're just trying to proselytize even now. But that's not his point. His point is to say, maybe if you search yourself, maybe you have another home and you just haven't acknowledged it yourself. Which, of course, is setting up the finale of this very episode. Michael and Nancy have rolled up on Rudy's home. He is packing things up. He's ready to leave. She sneaks into the house. And just as she's about to arrest him, he kills himself. But Michael had been curious. Who had called Rudy? His wife was on the phone with someone that night. She didn't know Rudy. So who called Rudy the night of her murder so that Rudy would even know where she was? Rudy ends up committing suicide. He knows things are not going to be great for him if he ends up in prison. But before he does, he does leave a little clue saying, who called me? Who always calls me when there's something to be cleaned up? For example, trying to disappear a judge's car. Hearing the gunshot, Michael runs towards the house and is about to call 911 when Nancy comes out and she tells him this little piece of information. So Michael, of course, knows exactly who Rudy's talking about. Michael is going to have to have a conversation with Charlie. But before we get there, we'll check in with Gina and her husband. <laughs> Gina finds his tranquility irritating. He has, as I mentioned before, never been calmer and more confident. They get notification from their inside man, police officer, that Eugene has been taken into custody. This is not sufficient for Gina. She wants him to do something to which he says, what can I do? <laughs> He's already been arrested. And then interestingly, we have this fracture, another fracture here within the Baxters. Jimmy says to Carlo, we need someone close, someone we can trust. I need you to be that person for me right now and for us. Carlos seems to love this. He's been waiting for this for a very long time. Gina, interestingly, has always felt she wanted Jimmy to trust more in Carlo. And here at this moment, when he is winning Carlo over and supposedly giving Gina what she's wanted for a long time, she immediately becomes spiteful and says, my son needs to rest and you're not allowed back in this house again unless Fia is back. My boy needs his rest. And I don't want to see you at the house unless Fia has come home. So once again, very petty that Gina, well, not surprisingly, honestly, given her character, that Gina is going to create yet another rupture inside the family when they are really at their weakest and most disorganized. And then Michael goes and visits Charlie and gets that final confession, although Charlie may still be hiding some details. It turns out that Robin was killed because she was investigating dirty cops. It wasn't a random act of violence. It was a hit. 
And before Robin left the house that night, I overheard her make a telephone call. Michael. And that call was to you, wasn't it? She wanted to know if I had any contacts in the police department. And you called Rudy Cunningham. Well, I, I called the guy I call. I was trying to help her. I had no idea. You didn't connect those dots. If I had known, I, I would have come forward with it. I'm sorry, Michael. Me too. And after that revelation, Michael takes his lonely bus ride home. Once again, probably at his lowest point, probably suicidal, more suicidal than ever, with all of this out in the open and feeling deep down inside that his friendship with Charlie maybe is what got her killed, got Robin killed. It's just truly a miserable point. And Cranston does a really good job here, just breaking down on the bus, sadly, by himself. And of course, just like The Last of Us, <laughs> one last ray of hope here at the very end, when he gets home, a child, a child, his grandson, and Fia need his help. And that's probably going to be the one thing that keeps him going, that somebody still needs him. So how did I feel about this? A long night continues here. I do think we start a new day finally, next episode. This show is definitely approaching its end game. And once again, one of the things that keeps me interested in continuing to watch the show is the fact that I really do not know how things are going to land. Will Sophia actually turn her back on her family? Is Charlie more involved in Robin's murder than he's letting on? Is he now a threat to Michael and to Nancy? How far will he go to maintain his reputation if he is more complicit? I'm pretty certain Big Mo is going to have a big downfall here. The only question there is, will the Baxters take her down or will it be her own gang that eventually turns her back on her? After trying to achieve some respectability in owning this club, it has also led to her, her final collapse, perhaps. There's all the drama within the Baxters. I do worry that Gina and her father and those loyal to them may just take down Jimmy. And if Sophia does indeed turn the table on them, how far will Gina go to keep her quiet? So absolutely high stakes for our cast of characters here. And I don't know how it's all going to shake out. Eugene is behind bars, but he's a danger to many of our players here. So there's a multitude of folks that want him to be permanently silenced. And just three more episodes to tie these things up, which seems to be plenty of time, actually, considering how action-packed this particular episode was. Yeah, so this was a strong episode, and once again, not the type of suspense we saw in season one, a very different show now at this point, but is answering questions every single week and still setting up new stakes. Next week, Michael tells Gloria he's done yet again, and she says, no, you're not, and she wants to bring Sophia into the fold, as I suspected, perhaps her grand scheme this whole time. Meanwhile, Big Mo has big problems. Some of her gang might be turning against her. And Gina's on the warpath. War has been declared, and Gina's going to take advantage of it. And she's going to be dangerous, more and more isolated, with Sophia turning her back on the family as well. If you're catching an early version of this episode, here we are at the end. Make sure to follow us so you know when, as we continue to cover this show, and prepare to cover Yellow Jackets, and watch The Last of Us if you happen to be watching that as well, and listen to our podcast on those episodes. If you catch this a little bit later, I have recorded a conversation with Sona where we cover this episode as well as last week's episode, which is fitting. It covers basically one day in the world of the show, and we'll get her impressions of these two most recent episodes. And that conversation will start right now. I said we were done. I meant it. We are not done. Help me flip via Baxter. First Rocco and then Fia. I'm losing my family one member at a time. Do you know what'll happen to me in here if I get caught snitching? I'm just trying to protect you. Then don't leave me. See y'all, Bart. No bite. Nah. That bitch got bite. All right, Sona. So how was your vacation, by the way? 
It was amazing. I was in Jamaica, one of the most beautiful places in the world. Wonderful. I've never been, yet to be. Ah, so fantastic. I have been begging my family for a resort vacation for years because we are kind of active vacationers generally. I'm an active vacationer because I get carried along with the crowd, not because it's my nature. This (laughs) is my nature. Just moving from the beach to the pool, to the beach, to the pool with a frozen drink, (laughs) watching the palm trees sway. No, we should consider that. Jamaica too, you can get good prices. We happen to, you know, we like to travel during peak season, school break weeks. <laughs> right. <laughs> but if you're if you're not tied to that, you can get a good deal. <laughs> That's the tricky part as well. I don't worry too. Yeah. And before we get into any uh, discussion of this episode of, uh, or both episodes actually of uh, Your Honor, did you have anything you else you watched during vacation you wanted to discuss? Did have you kept kept up with shrinking? I need to catch up on shrinking and I'm going to do it this weekend. And I am so looking forward to it, actually. I actually decided to read on my vacation for something Good. different. That's a great idea, actually. <laughs> yes. Did you watch the Super Bowl? The Super Bowl was on. Or Rihanna? I watched the Rihanna concert. A lot of confusion on my part because I'm not on top of pop culture as to whether <laughs> she was pregnant, whether I was supposed to know she was pregnant, whether this was a pregnancy announcement. But I enjoyed it. Um, I, I I feel like I maybe enjoyed it more than Rihanna enjoyed it. <laughs> I did not enjoy it. I have to say, I give no. her kudos. Yeah, I give her kudos for performing, and she was pregnant. It did turn out she was pregnant. Uh, it was pretty funny. I googled, "Is Rihanna pregnant?" Uh, and it was not announced until after the halftime show that she's pregnant with her second child. By the way, and the response that came up was. I guess because it was happening instantaneously, which was someone saying that everybody on Twitter right now is asking, is Rihanna pregnant? <laughs> well, yes, especially because she so recently had a baby. Yes, yes. That within the past year. Yeah. It was hard to know exactly what the situation might be. <laughs> because I, you know, I didn't keep track of when she gave birth and how long ago that was. And, you know, it well, let's not get into it. But it was confusing. <laughs> Yes, it was. And and also the outfit seemed to be unflattering considering it was kind of unzipped to, I guess, show the belly. I think but so, yeah. It wasn't intending to show the belly. I'm sure the original fitting wasn't like that. So it was all I found kind of awkward. And then there was no, I mean, other than her being on the platform, which of course she's doing while she's pregnant, she's lip syncing. She's out of breath, obviously. I mean, I remember when my wife was pregnant. She was out of breath constantly. So all kudos to that accomplishment. But just as watching someone on a platform for 10 minutes, 15 minutes, I'm like, eh, okay. <laughs> I mean, she was just a woman getting a paycheck, clearly. But it reminded me how many hits she has, which are many. She has no paychecks, though. Nobody gets paid for these shows. They, I mean, obviously make money because their songs oh, you know, go to the top of the charts that, you know, afterwards. But she's not getting a check. And I'm not, I mean, her songs definitely climb the charts because that's what always happens. I don't know how long a tail that's going to have. Maybe people went and bought a lot of Fenty Beauty after the show. <laughs> Maybe. That's where she Maybe. makes all her money, by the way. She's yeah. like a multi-billionaire at this point. So, Those are some great products. I have a couple. Good for her for putting in the effort. And for I'm sure it was difficult. <laughs> yes, kind of. <laughs> and I felt like that was kind of weak in general. I mean, I'm sorry, but I mean, I just feel that, yes, she was pregnant. Things probably changed logistically, but she had nobody else out there. And she has so many hits. She didn't need anybody else. I mean, that's yeah. something that I look forward to usually is that they bring yeah. other people out. Um, it may be a surprise. It may not be a surprise, but I was... I, I did not expect her to just carry the whole thing herself yep. the entire time. And I think it would have been nice to have a couple of unexpected guests besides her fetus. <laughs> and, and I mean, I don't know what the logistics of this are, obviously, but just the fact that, for example, I think SZA still has like the number one album in the country. She has a couple of songs with SZA. Put her out there. Catch your breath. <laughs> Yes. I mean, I don't think it's that complicated. (laughs) It's not that hard, I don't think, to get this to, but apparently it is, you know, I I don't know. I'm relatively unimpressed with these halftime shows and I figures it shouldn't be this hard, (laughs) but again, maybe it is. Nonetheless, I am a fan of her music and I enjoyed hearing it. Let's just say that, I guess. And I am a fan of a lot of her songs. So just to put that out there as well. So many hits. Yeah. She hasn't had an album since Auntie. 
and uh, just which is like six years now. And she's been building up her empire <laughs> since then. So right. she's been busy, very busy. And that was a great album, by the way, terrific album. But yeah, I'm just not impressed with this, unfortunately. It wasn't as much fun as the halftime shows usually are. No, definitely not fun. I felt like it yeah. was even the platforms and stuff were just difficult without being yeah, you know, a little stressful fun. too. When you thought about a pregnant woman being up there, and yeah, exactly. Just it just mm-hmm. made just thinking that she was pregnant on that platform made me more tense than it probably <laughs> was intended to. So. An anxiety-inducing halftime show. <laughs> exactly, exactly. <laughs> and the terrible choreography too. Like I mean, like I don't know, like the the butt clapping and stuff. <laughs> I'm not sure how how uh, impressive this is. I mean, yeah, some own. interesting decisions on the choreography for <laughs> sure. With that, uh digression out of the way. You did see the two most recent episodes of Your Honor, and I've already recapped both of them. So Oh, I'm mostly- okay then. <laughs> wow. <laughs> I go on vacation for five days and you've just moved on without me. <laughs> I just moved on. I can't just wait on you, lady. <laughs> but all that is to say that I'm primarily just interested in getting your feedback. What did you think? These two episodes are kind of of a piece, right? It's like one long night, pretty much. A lot of revelations here too, right? So what did what did you think about these episodes? So much happening. I thought this most recent episode was perhaps the best episode of the show so far in both seasons, honestly. Mm-hmm. Um, and my husband came in halfway through watching it. He watched last week's with me last night. And then because I wanted to talk with you today, I started the next one without him here. And he came home halfway through. And after I endured the complaining about that, um, he joined me and he also thought it was an amazing last half of the episode. Really compelling. I really like that they didn't go down this route of like, did Michael kill his wife after all? Mm -hmm. Yes, I agree. Which is something that I guess would have been interesting, but also predictable. Yeah. I like that they used it to introduce this new plot which, you know, they managed to pull it together pretty well with things that happened in the first season, tying it back to events yep, there. Absolutely. Considering that in my mind, I'm convinced that they did not have this plot previously constructed. I like the revelation of Charlie's involvement in it, which yep. was mm-hmm. very confusing to me in that first scene. <laughs> yes. um, I actually thought I was going to have to say to you, and you need to walk me through this. Why does this make sense? And what <laughs> am I supposed to be taking from it? But then it was spelled out, you know, much more clearly a few minutes later. Right. Uh, So I liked that. I liked the return of Costello. I mean, she's been sprinkled throughout, but I liked the way that they used her here. I liked in the previous week's episode, the scene with Michael and his mother-in-law in the convenience store. I thought yeah. it was mm-hmm. a really poignant moment when they clasped hands, when mm-hmm. they were hearing what had happened to Robin, I thought was yeah. really a nicely done emotional moment. All in all, I thought this did a surprisingly good job of tying in things from the first season when I don't think you know that was the original intention when they wrote the first season. So yep. mm-hmm. I, I thought it was very well done. And then as far as the other storylines, very relieved to see that Eugene is still alive as of now. Another one of those things where you don't realize how attached you've become to the character until you think they might be dead and then you're upset. <laughs> right. So I was really happy to see that he survived the shooting in the shoulder. Nice to see that character. Oh, uh, Lee. Yes, her his lawyer. Mm-hmm. Yes. I liked the reintroduction of her character. Very interesting to see how things are playing out with Moe's quote unquote family and mm-hmm. then also the Baxter family at the same time. It feels yep. like mm-hmm. they are doing a slow jacking up of the tension. And you have these parallel leaders that are losing their family potentially, right? In both mm-hmm. cases. All around, I'm very impressed with these last couple of episodes in a way that I did not expect to be when I started watching this season. What did you think? Yeah, I've been enjoying it as well. I, I agree that it's a better show than it like has any right to be, <laughs> practically. <laughs> what do you think is up with Charlie? Is that the full truth you think we've heard so far? Because he's still kind of hedging his bets here saying, uh, she called me to say, do you have any police contacts that I could reach out to that might know something about this story, about these corrupt cops? And then theoretically, coincidentally, he's one of these corrupt cops. Do you think that's the case? Or do you think Charlie was maybe a mastermind running some of this uh, dirty cops, or at least aware that they were dirty cops and that's how he was using them? 
you think that's going to be more to that or, or no? I originally thought it was the former, but you know, I am very naive when it comes to <laughs> believing the best in people, especially fictional characters. And my husband thought it was the latter. Yeah. So, and I kind of became convinced of that by the end of the episode as well. What do you think? Yeah, I feel the same way. I, I might gut instinct it was immediately that he was covering up additional details. Right. But it, it would be a little out of character. You see how he is reluctant. Like, for example, he's telling Big Mo last week, or was it two weeks ago, this is going to be the last favor he's going to grant her. There's this conversation as if he feels like he's a little bit in too deep with these people he doesn't trust. And I would feel like if he's this criminal mastermind who's been pulling strings this whole entire time, he wouldn't be feeling this awkward. And also there's a whole situation with him and Michael having been friends for so long, you'd figure Michael would get a feel for him earlier on, but it could be have been more accidental. Maybe he was just cornered, right? He was in a situation where she was about to uncover his complicity in something and he just allowed it to happen. This almost felt to me like this could be the final episode of the series, but it's not. So I assume we're going to get more information about this. Yeah, I believe so. I think this is not the end of the line. As a matter of fact, we have three more episodes and I was going to ask you, where do you think, what's the direction of the show from here? Because they've wrapped up so many things. Obviously, you know, there's going to be more blowback on the Baxters. Those deals are probably not going to be as neat. Gina is uh, definitely going to make some kind of move here. So against her own husband, Fia is still going to be an issue. And of course, the, what's happening in the Desire Gang. But theoretically, all those things could resolve in like one episode. So I'm not sure exactly what the shape of all of this is going to be. Uh, one thing that I had kind of suspected early on, which apparently was or is going to be based on the coming attractions, Olivia apparently seems to be saying, you need to turn Sophia against her family. So that's the next ask she's going to have for Michael. Uh, that was kind of where I was thinking, well, how is she trying to play Michael this whole entire time? And Michael does have that in where potentially mm -hmm. this could have been her whole master plan. Although I can't imagine what kind of leverage she's going to have to get her to actually turn, uh, Sophia to actually turn on her family. I don't think that's going to be the case, but that remains to be seen. True. But I do think between that plot, the Baxter plot, the Big Mo plot, there's enough to cover three oh, episodes. Yeah. So. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I feel like the whole thing will just be like at a slow boil that is getting more and more intense until, yeah. you know, either the last episode or sometimes, you know, we've discussed it's the penultimate episode where everything really happens. Yeah, exactly. Also, uh, going back to something Olivia said, I think in the second episode where she said, Michael, if you play your cards just right or play your part just correctly, everyone is going to get what they deserve. It's starting to feel like that, right? You start feeling this like noose is tightening around everybody. I'm starting to think like this show is going to end with Gina's going down and Jimmy's yeah. going down and maybe everybody except for Michael, but maybe even Michael goes down too. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, like mm -hmm. There could be a lot of collateral damage there at the end. Mo looks like she's losing her hold on power there as well. Mm -hmm. I think that little Mo and Chris there at the end of the episode explicitly saying like they need to go after Big Mo. She may have lost some loyalty to from her own people at this point. You know, what I said to my husband at the time is that phrase, if you're going to come at the king, you best not miss, right? Like <laughs> That's right. That could go really, really badly. So, <laughs> All right, I, I want to talk about whether this is a really stupid character, which apparently doesn't seem to be the case, or just really, really bad plotting. Eugene being shot at the bus stop. He's online yes. getting on the bus. There's people on both yes. sides of him. The cop is there. Rudy is there. No mask, no hiding his identity at all. Like anybody could just say, I saw this guy. This is what he looked like. The the, the sketch artist would be like, huh, I think this guy works here. <laughs> He's got a silencer <laughs> on his gun, like super suspicious, walking around with a gun with a silencer on it. Shoots him in the shoulder, something that in my recap last week, I explicitly said, I don't think he's dead. It looks like he got shot in the shoulder. Shoots him not center of mass, shot him to the side. Like he just walked away. He's surprised to hear that yes. Eugene ran off. Like yes. what happened? It, like he just shot him and turned his back and walked the other direction. He didn't Very notice strange. that the <laughs> didn't notice that the guy just got up and ran away. Like it, it seemed a terrible course of events there. Yes. Very fair criticism. I agree. Another thing that I thought was weird this week, and I did like this episode, by the way, I don't want to just, I'm just calling these out because I don't have anyone else to talk to about them except for you. <laughs> <laughs> 
the uh, other thing I thought was really strange was when this uh, police officer pulls over Michael to this week, and it turns out to be that dirty cop. As I was actually recapping the show, I was like, the guy has been shadowing Michael and is using this yes. as an excuse. But when he says, what's your name? And he says, Michael Delgado. He's like, the judge? He seems so surprised. So I'm like, this was an accident? He just coincidentally picked up Michael and then all this other stuff happened? Like, that's a very strange set of events as well, don't you think? It's true. I mean, I definitely thought he had been following right. him. And I'm just trying to remember, was there an exchange about it being a coincidence? Well, for me, and there may have even been some conversation, the part for me that called that out was when he didn't have his driver's license. And of course, he has Elizabeth's name on the, yes. on the registration. So asks, and what is your name? And he says, Michael Delgado. And he like stops in his tracks and he's like, the judge? And then, of yes. course, it turns out, you know, this is what's happening. But once again, another crazy coincidence uh, that I was like, oh, that's kind of surprising. I mean, I thought it was kind of a self-inflicted wound, once again, from this point of view of writing the story, because there's no reason you can't say this cop was just staking out outside of Elizabeth's house and uh, took the first opportunity to pull him over, right? Or uh, yeah, So it, right. it just- um, And it's Desiato, just a quick Desiato? clean up on that. Oh, yes. Is it Delgado? Is that what I said? <laughs> yes. <laughs> Not an Italian name, Delgado. <laughs> <laughs> Not usually. <laughs> right. So yeah, so I enjoyed it as well. We've mentioned earlier that uh, in multiple recaps that this has been stronger. I think this season, the writing's been stronger. It's been really a nice change of pace from the first season. I mean, I was very tense during the moments where yes. mm -hmm. Michael was with the cop, right? And they're pulled over and they're talking to each other about everything that's happened and how it happened. I mean, a little bit of a cliche to have the cop shot just as he's about to yes. shoot Michael, <laughs> yeah. right? I mean, we've seen that type of thing a thousand times and it just always seems so unlikely that that timing mm -hmm. would occur. That all of that was very tense for me, and I was very stressed out watching it. And Eugene freaking out when Rudy is approaching his hospital mm -hmm. bed. There was a lot mm -hmm. of tense moments in, yes. in the show. I have a different theory on the shooting, by the way. <laughs> I think that um, Nancy was standing there in the shadows the whole entire time, like listening to the confession, being like, mm -hmm, and timing mm -hmm, it, <laughs> and waiting. She's just like, I'm going to wait just in case he says anything else interesting until the very, very last second. <laughs> Um, not correct procedure there in the rest when she's uh, beating the guy up and uh, unlocking no. his phone against his will. <laughs> no, I always find that entertaining, though, when somebody uses the face ID in a way that yes. it's not designed to be used. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there's a double edged sword, right? Unlocking your phone. It's like if the person yes. knocks you out, they have free right. access to your phone. <laughs> I think your eyes do have to be open. We could pin them open. <laughs> I guess. And it works with sunglasses on, on right? So. Oh, that's true. They have that now, yeah. And with a mask, yeah. with a mask, you mm -hmm. put sunglasses and a mask over your mouth. Right, your, it'll be fine. <laughs> put like a, a a hat on, put some sunglasses on, and wear a yeah. mask, and and it's still it unlocks. Well, I don't think how that's very accurate. That I've done it with sunglasses, and I've done it with a mask. I don't know if I've ever done it with sunglasses and a mask. That's something <laughs> I'll have to, to look into. Try the combo, see what happens. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and put a hat on. Like, put your hair back. See if it's still distinguish <laughs> you from somebody else. By the way, uh, I binge watched a show that came out this week on Amazon Prime called The Consultant because it had okay. a serious severance oh. feel to it. And mm -hmm. it didn't quite land. It, this is Christoph Waltz playing a devious consultant that takes over a tech company. It has a lot of layers to it. They have little supernatural elements to it also. And it was, I called it uh, severance for dummies <laughs> in mm. that it's does it's not as deep or rich as that is, but it is also all available all at once. The episodes are only half an hour long, so I could binge it very, very quickly. And I did. Uh, I think if it went week to week, I would not have watched it, but I did mm -hmm. binge it all the way through. But as I was watching it, I was like, this is not a recommendation for Sona because this is like the goat episode of Severance, but the whole uh, show is like uh, the goat episode of Severance. So probably not, not your cup of tea. <laughs> Yikes. You may want to try sample just the first episode because Christoph Waltz is having a real fun time as the consultant. So you may want to check Oh, that yeah. Out. Hmm. You may appreciate that. I have a feeling it's going to be a little too out there for you, but but it was. Uh, but you check out the first episode and see if you like the Christoph Waltz performance. It might be enough to keep you going. If not, then quit after episode one. <laughs> <laughs> 
And they're short, half an hour. You can knock it out if you want to watch an episode of that. But you still have to watch Shrinking, and that's uh, that's no, half an hour. That also. is absolutely happening. This a more weekend. satisfying. I'm actually, really half an looking hour. forward to it. Yeah, I'm really looking forward to it. And I'll be uh, discussing Shrinking with Sarah, by the way. And uh, nice. I'll be including the conversation here as well. So maybe next week when you catch up on that, I'll also include her conversation just to get her feel for, she's also enjoying the show very much, but obviously from her perspective as a therapist, <laughs> all the things the show gets wrong <laughs> or right as well. So mm-hmm, mm-hmm. We'll, we'll include that conversation in an upcoming episode as well. And that's it. We got three more episodes. I'm very excited to see where it all goes. Me too. And then Yellow Jacket starts. That's very exciting also. Mm-hmm. And succession, right? right? Yeah, of course. Oh, of course. Yeah, we could do that. We're doing that one together mm-hmm. as well. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Very exciting. Big things happening. <laughs> I didn't read the article. There probably was an article. I'm not sure. I saw a quote though from Brian Cox talking about. <laughs> yes. Mm-hmm. Do you know what I'm talking about? <laughs> yes. Mm-hmm. <laughs> about Jeremy Strong's uh, yes. method acting and how it makes him very annoying to be around. <laughs> <laughs> yes. You know what's funny about all of that? I wanted to have a conversation about that article when it broke towards the end. I mean, it was like probably right at the end of the previous season of Succession. And I did want to dig into that with you, but you know, then the show wrapped up and we moved on to other things. So we never got back to it. But I do find it funny that now Brian Cox is like doubling down on his criticism. They just finished this season. They've just been working together for like months, like, like six or seven months together. And, now and he, he has a, had it. <laughs> yes. But I mean, he already said some pretty disparaging <laughs> things about him in the previous article also. So I do like Jeremy Strong, by the way, who, of course, is a younger, much younger actor. He His response to that, they're like, what did you think of that? He goes, he has earned the right to say whatever he wants. <laughs> he, that is a that, good response. <laughs> he is a, you know, obviously it's like, you know, he's in that generation of like Anthony yes. Hopkins and stuff, maybe younger than Anthony Hopkins, but not that far off, maybe 10 years younger. And I mean, he's in his 70s. He has been around the block many, many times. He's given some incredible performances. And maybe we get into that little bit of controversy around the dynamics in the group, because of course, it's a very entertaining article to read, to hear everybody's reaction. Brian Cox, of course, could care less. So he just says everything like it is. But these other characters will just say things like, we would go out for drinks and we wouldn't include him. <laughs> just like little <laughs> things like that, you know? And, and like literally that's the dynamic, right? Like some of the directors and producers on the show and the writers, the showrunner, talked about exactly that, how it was like a family. They would have meals together. They would have catering and they would all hang out after the set and like the siblings would just sit around and goof around together. And they had this like dynamic, but he was like locked in his trailer, staying in character. So, and I got to assume that that is very weird in the context of that dynamic, but maybe appropriate, right? Cause he's kind of the outsider. I was sitting. about to say it might work yeah. in terms of the show exactly. and the way exactly. people relate to him and react with him. And perhaps that is his master plan. <laughs> exactly. And by the way, in that same article, that's exactly what he says. He says that it works and he doesn't go into details, but I think that's what he's implying that it works for the dynamic he's trying to generate. And that's part of the process. And the showrunner says the same thing. The showrunner did not say anything derogatory, unlike a lot of the other people. He says nothing derogatory. He just says, yeah, it works for me. <laughs> he says like, <laughs> the, the, results like, are not, the, the, the results are what we want. So, hey, that's whatever works, works. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah it's interesting though the way these very different methods it reminds me of if you've ever seen marathon man have you ever seen marathon man with i have uh, not so in marathon man you have dustin hoffman who's you know one of these method actors maybe one of the most well-known and Lawrence olivier plays the nazi who's torturing him i don't know if you even if you've never seen marathon man you probably know that's the scene where like Lawrence olivier keeps saying is it safe is it safe he's uh doing dental work on Oh God. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Okay. It's yeah. like this torture. It's like a torture sequence basically. And uh, Dustin Hoffman is completely haggard, shaking and physically just like at the end of his rope. And Lawrence Olivier says, you're like, so in character, how did you do this? And he's like, I haven't slept in these number of days. I haven't eaten. I haven't done this. So he, I've taken all this coffee. So he's like trying to manufacture this experience. And Lawrence Olivier goes, my boy, have you ever considered acting? <laughs> <laughs> So that's the old school. That's the uh, you know, versus yeah. the new school, right? So just another example of it yet again. So, But I wonder with people with such long, prolific careers, if maybe you start out one way and end up the other, right? Right. It's very possible. I mean- uh, That you're 
all dedicated to the method acting in the beginning. And then by the time you're 70, you can just flip it on and off like a switch. I think that is exactly the situation of someone who explicitly embraced method, which is Robert De Niro, who, you know, you think about Taxi Driver, you think about Raging Bull, he was gaining weight and transforming his body and, you know, making himself as antisocial and isolated as possible while he's making Taxi Driver. And now he just gives the same performance in every movie. And he's just like, yeah, this is good enough. (laughs) (laughs) And it usually is. It usually is. So Kind of the Harrison Ford thing we were talking about too. Well, Harrison Ford has always been that. That's always been his case. So that's, that's, been his his modus operandi since day one pretty much that's what made him a star right he's like he just doesn't give a shit about anything whether it's indiana jones or whether it's uh han solo that was his that's what made him cool right he was just kind of like eh, i could take it or leave it (laughs) (laughs) it's not broken why fix it exactly what do you think of his performance we talk about this on shrinking I love it. I'm not sure if we talked about it or not. We might have in the context of my talking about his interview with uh, Kelly and Ryan, but I am really enjoying it. I think it's the perfect curmudgeonly performance. All right. Let's end it there. (laughs) On that note. (laughs) I'll talk to you soon. Okay. Talk to you later. Bye. Bye.